Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. It's Wednesday, March 22nd, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. You know, Donald Trump, not always the most truthful guy in the world. 30,573 lies the Washington Post chronicled. I don't trust that number. Come on, it's too big. I mean, there are also the lies that nobody talks about, meaning every time he said nobody is talking about this, and that wasn't true. People were talking about it. Or every time he talked about a big guy, a tough guy coming over and crying and always saying, Mr. President, in that voice, eh, the lies, all the lies, all the misstatements, all the phrases that turned out not to be true, all the hurricane trajectories that didn't come to pass. The Mexicans, they didn't pay for it. Nope. We're all paying for it in a way, all but the Mexicans. But there is one underrated, overstated phrase from the Trump portfolio. More so a phrase of overstatement than even Trump University or Trump Steaks as an actual USDA verified cut of beef. It's this one. Hush money. The hush money Donald Trump paid is the loudest hush money in history. More people learned about this hush money than glimpsed Victoria's Secret, speaking of a brand run by a one-time Republican donor and Jeffrey Epstein associate. Hush money. Not only was the money paid to a porn star not hushed up, but when you think about it, how could it be? It's a porn star. It's not a porn character actress who would just disappear into her roles. Who in the world has less discretion, is less incentivized to be discreet about their sexual exploits than a porn star? Well, maybe Donald Trump is that person. But it is the very business model of the porn star to seek notoriety for the having of sex. And Donald Trump was fine to engage in that cycle, just in terms of election law, not morality. Fine to engage in the cycle of laid, paid, but not said. In fact, he seemed to have done it more than once. In triple fact, maybe it's double, lost count. The evidence that could best exonerate Donald Trump in what is likely to be an indictment would be his lawyers just exposing his entire hushed up history. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, my client wasn't seeking an electoral advantage. He was just seeking nookie, no strings nookie. It wasn't the American people he was trying to deceive. It was whatever wife he had at the time. And also, you know, the Christian right. Alas, Trump is so cheap, he would rather not pay a lawyer smart enough to follow through on this, I think, very potent line of argument. He would rather not retroactively waste all the hush money he has already invested. He'd rather just risk it. Remember, it was his cheapness that brought this whole issue to bear. Michael Cohen was protecting his liege until Trump started balking at paying Cohen's legal expenses. Anyway, the New York DA isn't likely to bring the expected charge today, and we only thought he might because Trump said so, based on nothing more accurate than, you know, his statement that tariff wars are easy to win. 
But in other actually indicted celebrity news, the SEC has charged the following eight individuals with illegally touting crypto. Lindsay Lohan, Jake Paul, Soldier Boy, Austin Mahone, Kendra Lust, Lil Yachty, Neo, and Akon. All but Soldier Boy and Austin Mahone have settled without admission of wrongdoing. I can't be mad at an honest, slight fraud going wrong. I mean, Lil Yachty just wants to become bigger Yachty. Kendra Lust, a hardworking porn star. And just today, the Arizona Republic announced Neo is opening his first Metro Phoenix restaurant, Chicken and Waffles. What kind of honesty do we expect from washed-up two-bit celebrity hucksters and also actual skilled boxer Jake Paul? Our deal is you execute your low level of grift, your very existence and entertainment being part of that grift, and then you pay fines whenever caught. And you also promise, this is mostly by implication up until recently, but you promise not to become president. It's when you break that compact that trouble abounds. On the show today, the most talked about, not yet indictment, as I cover the Michael Cohenness of it all in the spiel. But first, Neil Gross once walked the beat. He is now a college professor who examines his one-time profession. The name of his book is Walk the Walk, How Three Police Chiefs Defied the Odds and Changed Cop Culture. And as an extra benefit, we're also joined by Leon Nixon, who is a professional voiceover artist and himself a former high-ranking police officer. Neil Gross and Leon Nixon, Walk the Walk, up next. The Defender is a beautiful car, but beauty is, of course, sometimes only skin deep. Not with the Defender. Let's talk about the interior. It's robust, built with integrity. Yes, it's designed iconically. The exterior, that's what compelled me. My, my neighbor Jay says, Mike, you see what's on the block? It's a Defender. And I look down the block, and indeed there is. And me and Jay the neighbor and Michelle, we gather around the Defender. We peer in the window. I have to say... I don't want to make this a too tawdry, but we lust or perhaps we gvel. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. We looked at the cargo capacity, more room for the gear. There's really a wide range of adventures. The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further. The Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com slash Defender. Every time there's another incident of brutality or death in police custody, especially one as appalling as the one we just saw with Tyree Nichol in Memphis, the question arises, what can we do? Is there anything we can do? And what bothers me is that the answer is yes. It's clearly yes, if you know where to look. But I've not been seeing an elevation of the stories of policing successes. And one of the reasons is the yes, of course, comes with qualifiers. And the yes, when it comes to progress, of course, isn't just a steady stream of better policing, fewer deaths in the hands of police. We have fits and starts, and we wend our way eventually to justice. And also, there are departments where that doesn't happen. Well, a book that exemplifies all this is written by sociologist Neil Gross, Walk the Walk, How Three Police Chiefs Defied the Odds and Changed Cop Culture, 
Gross is a professor of sociology at Colby College in Maine. He's a former police officer. We're also joined by Leon Nixon, who was a police captain in the LA area. Gentlemen, thank you and welcome to The Gist. Thank you. Good morning. Mike, thanks for having us. Yeah. Neil, uh, you started, the book starts and you got me. I didn't know you were a former police officer. The book starts with a police officer interaction and it seems to go a little bit wrong and there are so many questions why and then the reveal is that was me. And my takeaway was if this could be a now Tweety professor who is obviously on the right side of things, it could be anyone. Was that your intent of including the anecdote? You know, I, I included it because uh, it's something that really stuck with me over the years. Um, you know, I, I joined the police force in, in Berkeley, California in the early 90s, right out of college. Crime was was really high and I wanted to protect my community. And, and you know, I had a, a secondary goal of trying to work from inside to kind of make the justice system more fair. This was uh, in the wake of the Rodney King uh, beating in Los Angeles and uh, all the unrest that followed. Um, joined the force uh, and uh, found myself on the street uh, after finishing the police academy um, and f- found that the the department that I was a part of um, looked different on the street than it had before I joined it. Um, and uh, and the experience that I describe in the book was of a stop of a, of a young black man, um, uh, actually two young black men uh, in a car uh, late at night uh, and uh, and it's a stop that, that quickly escalated out of control. So yeah, I mean, from my point of view, the, 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 the reason the stop stood with me was because if something could escalate so quickly for someone who went into policing for all the right reasons, uh, then certainly uh, it, it could escalate quickly for others as well. And when you got into the academy and when you, uh, when you became a professor, was it always a major source of your scholarship, how we police and what could be done about policing? No, it's a really relatively recent turn for me. You know, I, I uh, like I said, I went to college, I uh, went to police academy, um, served on the street for a relatively short time, le- less than a year, uh, left partially because I found that the culture of, of policing on the streets of, of East Bay was um, was different than I expected, but but also I uh, left because I, I wanted to study law enforcement and see what I could do to make it better. Went off to graduate school and uh, and then got pulled in other directions. So it's only recently that I've come back to, to teaching about the police and now writing about them. And does that exemplify where we are societally? Uh, Police brutality has gone on for a long, long time, but now it really is the focus of so much of our attention. And that's one of the reasons it became the focus of your attention. I mean, I I do think that there's more, um, you know, critical interest in policing, more scholarship on it, certainly more journalism about it than than there has been for a long time. There there have always been uh, periods when there's been tremendous public concern about policing. I mean, think about what was happening in the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, Certainly there was uh, renewed interest um, after the Rodney King um, beating, uh, and, and now we're in a new period. So I, I think that in some respects, yeah, we, we go through these cycles of you know, intense attention, an effort at reform, uh, and then usually things you know, go back to some version of what they were before, um, perhaps slightly improved in some places. Um, you know, I, I turned to this uh, in 2015 because um, I moved to Colby College, which has a, a big emphasis on teaching undergraduate, and I wanted to you know, teach courses about, about law enforcement and, and sort of give a little bit more complexity to the narrative. So. Leon, you come to the project in an interesting way. As listeners heard, the subtitle is How Three Police Chiefs Defied the Odds and Change Cop Culture. But you're not one of the chiefs. You were a captain at the Port Police at San Pedro. How did you get involved in this book? In what form did you get involved? Well, I'm an audiobook narrator, and I've been an audiobook narrator for the past six years. And when the publisher had the book and they wanted to put it in audio, I was reached out to and said, hey, would you mind auditioning for this book? Uh, give the author a listen, see if you're the right fit for it. Obviously, the demographic, uh, the 
type of person that would listen to it. And I bring something to it, having a police background. So I, I auditioned for the book and I was accepted. Thank you. And um, was able to narrate it from a position of experience. What percentage of the books you've narrated have been about policing or even just, you know, cop dramas? Good question. Not very many. Not very many at all. I narrate my fair share of nonfiction and fiction, and not very many of them are police related. I want to get back to you and your impressions of the book, but let's lay out what that book is, the beginning, end, and the middle parts. You, Neil, chronicle three chiefs, and the three chiefs show different circumstances. Two examples, tell me if I'm getting this right and fill in details, two examples of general success, but in different kind of departments, and one example of um, a police department that's still trying to achieve what one would call success. Is that about right? Yeah, I think just building on what you said before, I mean, I think my my perception going into this was that you know, we hear a ton about the the problems with the police and, and those problems are, are real, um, you know, racial disparities in the use of force, uh, you know, police killings of civilians, uh, general racial disparities in, in arrests and other aspects of law enforcement enterprise. Uh, you know, those, those problems are, are clear and apparent. You know, I think we've not heard as much about uh, departments that are doing things different and, and that are achieving some degree of relative success. And, and that's really a shame. You know, one of the, the things that's interesting about policing this country compared to other countries is it's so decentralized. Uh, so many thousands of police departments uh, all across the country. And that's a double-edged sword, right? Harder to coordinate. But on the other hand, there's a lot of small departments or even bigger departments that can experiment, try new things. So if we're not learning about the departments that are doing things well, where those experiments are successful, there's, there's no chance for the whole system to learn. So that's why I want to profile. So yeah, three departments, Stockton, California, big city, uh, Central Valley, serious crime problem. That's the department where the chief was able to move the needle, but you know, not not fully, uh, but but to some degree. And then two other agencies, uh, one in Colorado called Longmont, much more progressive department, uh, and one in LaGrange, Georgia, a um, small city about an hour from the Alabama state line, uh, where a, a quite conservative police chief was able to push a department that had a long history of of racism uh, in, in a direction of, uh, of equality uh, and a focus on racial reconciliation. So, you know, I was really trying to profile departments that are that are doing things different and, and that really are focusing down on uh, changing the culture of policing. Yeah, so that is, the, the word culture is right on the cover and it's the theme. Why is that so important versus another way to look at policing, right? Like accountability and statistics or um, interdictions. There are, there are a number of thresholds, but why do you focus on culture, Neil? Well, look, policing and policing, those things you mentioned make a difference. Policy makes a difference. Uh, rules and regulations make a big difference. Uh, but the fact is, uh, you know, most policing is done outside the immediate supervision of, of people with authority. It's, you know, individual officers, um, maybe with their partners or, or you know, their cover units going into someone's house, stopping someone on the street. Uh, and in those circumstances, when there's not necessarily a supervisor watching, much more important is the, the the norms, the values, the mindset that cops bring to the job. Uh, that's been recognized for a long time, <clears throat> uh, and we there's some pretty good evidence that um, when uh, when things go wrong in policing, uh, when when you see cops engaged in abusive behavior, it's typically not because they've been ordered to to do that, and sometimes that does happen, but it's usually because they're enacting uh, kind of what they've learned from their from their peers, uh, really bad lessons from their peers about what makes for a good officer. So the idea is that if you change that culture. Uh, you're going a long way towards solving the problem. Now, now changing the culture alone won't make a difference. You also need accountability. You need stricter rules, stricter regulations. But it's the pairing of those two things, stronger rules and regulations, and a real change in culture that I think makes a, a huge difference. The popular paradigms now are warrior mentality versus guardian mentality. Is that the best way to think about what the change 
should be or is uh, being attempted? You know, I've always seen that as a little bit simplistic. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, there are certainly cops who think of themselves as as warriors, um, but I, I think that describes, you know, not quite the attitude of, of most of the cops I've interacted with, certainly over the years, even in departments that uh, that aren't doing things in, in a better fashion. Uh, and on the other hand, guardian is a little bit um, hard to understand as a concept. Um, it's a little bit um, unclear. You know, in the agencies that I, I focused on, they, they all had a different model of what made for a good cop, but they all focused on things like, um, like uh, uh, trying to exercise humaneness, professionalism, uh, a degree of social responsibility, um, you know, absolutely minimizing the use of force. Um, so if, if in these agencies, those kinds of more specific values mattered a lot more than a very abstract notion like guardians. But, uh, you know, if, if that's a, an idea that helps a local department move in a good direction, then I'm all for it. Uh, you know, certainly the warrior cop idea uh, doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, and, and guardians better than that. But I, I think, you know, we can do even better than that than that model. Right, right. There are some instances where a guardian is just not going to do and you might not survive a horrible fire f fight if you're, say, a guardian, whatever that means. And there are instances where it's not just the warrior mentality per se that leads to a horrible outcome. You know, New York Times did a great series about police. I think honestly disbelieving the, the cry of I can't breathe. So whether you're a warrior, whether you're a guardian, you just have to understand that if someone says I can't breathe, it, off it often means that within in seconds, he will pass out, right? As opposed to what I think the logical way of thinking about that, or the more um, the more uh, apparent and without deep thought way of thinking about that with as well, if you're saying, I can't breathe, and you could breathe. But Leon, to you, have, did when they started talking, I don't know when in your policing career they started, uh, people started talking about, let's have a guardian mentality. Did that do anything for you? Well, we never had that discussion about having a guardian mentality. It was always, we're the police, and then it's them. It was always, in my training, uh, from the very beginning, it was always us against them. We are the thin blue line. We are here to protect society from the ne'er-do-wells by any means necessary, so to speak. And so it, that's just kind of the way it was. It was never, you know, we're guardians and, you know, and we're warriors or we're not. It was just, this is us, this is them. This is how you go home at the end of the day. Right. And that's very important. And that is still emphasized in academies, like in the academy that you went through, right, Neil? Oh, oh for sure. I mean, I, I, that was a, a big part of the, um, of the training and, and a big part of what was taught. You know, one of the things I, I remember uh, very clearly was being taught, don't live in the city you police. Uh, and I guess that's maybe more important in a, in a smaller community. But, you know, but the idea was, uh, you know, that's the last thing you want to do. Uh, if, if you've arrested somebody, maybe they're going to follow you, you know, and, and they get released, maybe they're going to follow you home after a shift. Uh, you don't want people, uh, you know, knowing where you live. And, and so that meant that we weren't really part of the community, even though I, I was from the Berkeley area, so I, I knew it really well. But, uh, but that created that rift, that separation between us and them. And, and I'll just add, Mike, you know, I think that, uh, that, that us versus them, there's a, also a way in which the public fosters that. Right. Part of it is cops saying, you know, we're not uh, part of this community. We're the thin blue line. I think the other part of it is uh, is uh, police being a stigmatized profession. I mean, it's it's stigmatized to an extent now. It's always been a stigmatized profession. Uh, you know, it, from the standpoint of members of the public, uh, they might respect law enforcement. They might not, but they don't necessarily want to be friends with cops who can you know arrest them for you know doing something wrong. Um, so there's always been this divide, and I think the more we can do to bridge that, the, the better. Give me a couple of uh, the techniques that the successful police chiefs have used to, to, to achieve some of what you're talking about. Yeah. Well, I'll start with Stockton, which was this really interesting story. Uh, Chief there, Eric Jones, came in in, in 2012 
uh, after Stockton had experienced r- real problems as a city, uh, it, it suffered terribly during the financial crisis, uh, the city declared bankruptcy, crime rate was spiking. Uh, and so Jones uh, thought, you know, his first goal was to reduce crime uh, and try to keep the, keep the murder rate uh, to um, as low a level as it could be. And, and he discovered that he couldn't do that unless he won the trust or won more trust between uh, residents of the city and the police force. Stockton had a long history of uh, of abusing its uh, its residents, particularly its um, its black and um, uh, Latino residents, uh, and so he embarked on a program called procedural justice training, uh, something many departments have tried to do, um, most unsuccessfully. Uh, emphasizes equity and uh, and respect in interactions with citizens. But unlike other departments, he, he kept at it over the years. Uh, he forced all his officers to undergo that training, uh, and he tried to wind that idea through the whole police organization. And I'll just say the big thing that he he told me that he emphasizes is. I need to be one step ahead of my officers, not three steps ahead. So he was really cognizant of the fact that if he pushed too far too fast, he'd get tremendous pushback from his cops. So he tried to lead them slowly. And, and over the course of 10 years, he was able to make real change in that organization. How correlative is the actual danger that police are in, danger for their lives and well-being, and the warrior mentality? Hmm. Well, look, there's no question policing is a, is a dangerous occupation. Um, we know that you know, lots of officers are assaulted every year uh, and, um, and a, a not insignificant number of them lose their lives, whether through, um, through homicides or through traffic accidents is another common source of, of, um, of line of duty deaths. Uh, so policing is, is dangerous, there's no question. Um, I think the question is whether a warrior mentality, as people have described it, makes policing safer or less safe. And I haven't seen a lot of evidence to suggest that it makes policing more safe. In fact, uh, when you treat the people that you're interacting with on the street uh, as potential enemy combatants, um, uh, as many times as not, uh, that ends up alienating them, alienating the community, and it can lead situations to escalate uh, needlessly. So yeah, being safe uh, in terms of officer safety, using the right tactics, that's all important. But the more you lean into uh, a real engagement with the community, the actually the safer uh, law enforcement becomes. That's certainly been my experience, and that's the experience of the departments that I've uh, studied. Yeah, it does seem that seems logical that that would be the correlation in that direction. I'm just thinking about the other direction. When police see that other police are being literally attacked or sometimes killed, and you know, I've seen the statistics on that. It, there doesn't seem to be a huge spike, but when that is the perception, it seems very hard to convince police that they're not under siege if they perceive themselves to be under siege. How do you change things when that's the perception? I mean, I think that's a, a natural perception if you're if you're in a job and uh, and the job is dangerous and you hear about uh, uh, other people in the same occupation who've suffered um, suffered um, uh, and and been killed. Uh, it's natural to um, to want to protect yourself and do whatever you can. I'll give you an example of uh, one strategy of changing things, and that was the strategy embraced by a chief in uh, Lingrange, Georgia, this guy named Lou Deckmar, really interesting figure, uh, long kind of history in law enforcement before he moved to Georgia. Um, and uh, when he moved to the police department in LaGrange, he, he tried to remake it along uh, a whole number of different lines. But one of the things he, he did was to, to try to change what the collective memory of the occupation was all about. In other words, to try to keep officers from thinking all the time about murdered comrades. Keep that in mind, of course. But also think about people who'd been mistreated by the police in the past in the community. Uh, and ended up, ended up apologizing for his department's role in uh, a lynching that had taken place in 1940. And that ended up being a real turning point for the community. Um, and it helped the department move forward in a good way. So yeah, bear in mind, you know, all the things that have happened to law enforcement, protect yourself, all that stuff's important. 
But the more you can also think about the ways that law enforcement has uh, has sometimes protected the community and sometimes hurt the community, you know, the more you begin to shift the, the, the focus, the main orientation of the occupation. So, Leon, your rank was captain. Different departments have different ranks. Um, sometimes there's an inspector between a chief and a captain, but sometimes captain is the highest rank right under chief. How would you have liked or how do you think you would have reacted if any of the chiefs in these in this book were your chief? I would have loved to have had any one of these chiefs as my chief. It's all about change. We can't, you know, as a profession, policing can't continue the way it always has been. Times have changed. People have changed. The younger generation has changed. The younger generation is not like police were in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. So chiefs that want to come in and make changes, chief that, chiefs that want to be more engaged with the community, chiefs that don't do not have a arrest them all and let the courts sort it, sort it out mentality, uh, those chiefs need to go by the wayside. So I would have loved to have worked with any one of these chiefs. I wanted to ask you this, Leon. What did you learn from the book? I learned that there's hope. You know, if you turn on the news and you listen to people comment on the police, and I won't spout any of the, the phrases, but you would think that the police are under siege. You would think that the police are a bunch of brutes out to brutalize the community, out to take over and, and beat people and kill people. And that's not what the police are there for. The vast majority of officers are good. The vast majority of police chiefs, of whom I know many, are good hardworking, family-oriented, safe community-minded people. And there's such a small group of people that are out there terrorizing the community, and that should be dealt with, of course. But I was encouraged overall that, A, that Neil took the time to do the research, to find these gems in the policing profession that are willing to step out there and take a chance. You know, you don't know. The average the average lifespan of a chief in a chief position is three to five years. Mainly chiefs are hired, especially in smaller communities, smaller cities. They're hired to come in and make changes that the city manager, city administrator, the council want to see in their police department. So they hire a chief, they put the chief in as an at-will employee, the chief comes in, implements changes, and then the chief moves on. Chief is fired, the contract expires, who knows? The chief moves on. And then another chief comes in. That solves that problem for that moment. But what Neil did in this book is he solved the larger problem of policing, the culture. People respect what you inspect. And what these chiefs did was they had a vision for better policing, for more community engagement. Procedural justice blew me away because I've been wanting to see how that would land. It hasn't worked in many departments. And, and it landed very, you know, it, it's, it may not be fully engaged in, in Stockton but it's being tried. And so police, police chiefs with a short lifespan generally want to come in. They want to make some changes. They want to build their resume because they know their time is short and they want to move on. These chiefs took a chance. There's a lot of peril in a police chief position. You're on the, you're on the line all the time. And so you want, to, you want to keep your job or you want to get the next job. But these chiefs took the chance to do the right thing Maybe at, you know, personal sacrifice, maybe at personal peril, you know, who knows? Many have gone on to other things, good things. I think Eric Jones went on to something good, I think, in Sacramento. So it, it launched him into another, into another field. It allowed him to move forward. And if other chiefs can see that, it's not just self-preservation in your job as a police chief or a stepping stone to the next police chief job. If it's making a real difference 
and people seeing that you made a real difference and then rewarding that real difference with who knows what you're rewarded with. I think if other chiefs see that, then they'll be willing to step out and, and take that chance too. Yeah. And that's a wonderful place to end it. And Neil, you got not only an audiobook narrator, but uh, a really stirring spokesman, <laughs> two for one. I just want to note that. Neil Gross is the author of Walk the Walk, How Three Police Chiefs Defied the Odds and Changed Cop Culture. And if you want to listen to this book as an audiobook and not just read it, it will be Leon Nixon's voice you are hearing. Gentlemen, thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you. And now the spiel, the first ever prosecution of a former president, and it is a slam dunk case. Well, not a slam dunk, a layup. Okay, a contested corner three. All right, no, a top of the key three with a man in your face, which could be waved off by the referee. Also a possible shot clock violation. Sounds like a tortured metaphor, but it's apt. It is apt, my friends. At issue is Donald Trump's $130,000 payment to Stormy Daniels' niece, Stephanie Clifford, a campaign contribution, to be sure, or as is alleged. Now, Trump most certainly falsified business records in recording the hush money payments. That was, it's not hard to prove. TurboTax from Intuit, by the way, does not yet have a line item for hush money, though the law offices of Michael Cohen would like it to be in the next version, maybe with Control-H as the keyboard shortcut. So Trump... Certainly falsified documents. I'm not here to argue that he didn't. But that is a misdemeanor under New York state law. To get to felony, the Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg has to prove that he falsified records in service of some other crime. And that would be violation of election law. But it gets complicated, as the New York Times pointed out in a really good article today. New York state election law would seem to be at play, but this was a federal election. So federal election law would seem to be at play. Only Trump's lawyers have a pretty decent argument that it doesn't actually apply. And we know how much Trump's lawyers pursue an indecent argument, you know, basically to the ends of the earth. So give him a decent one. Who knows what happens? So this amounts to, going back to my analogy, this is the difficulty of the shot. Alvin Bragg shot his shot, and it's not an easy one. The waved off by the referee part is it could all very well be thrown out by a judge before a jury gets to hear it. And the time running out refers to the statute of limitations, which is supposed to be five years. The hush money was paid in 2016. So that seems to be a problem, but Then again, there are some outs and exceptions, including an extension for the coronavirus. Thank you, Andrew Cuomo. But this is the first ever prosecution of a former president. It is a legal theory that is untried. It doesn't mean that it's unworkable or wrong, just novel, like Donald Trump was very novel, like how among the crises he mishandled was the novel coronavirus. Oh, also, a possible key witness, maybe the key witness in the case, is Michael Cohen. I'd like you to listen to my exchange with former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig, who was on the gist a couple of weeks ago. This runs about a minute and a half. Do you think Michael Cohen is a good witness? So I've become friends with Michael Cohen. Um, I like him, and, and I believe him now but no, I don't. I w- I've said to his face on his podcast, um, I don't think he would be. I, I think it would be a very um, dangerous tack as a prosecutor to say he's going to be my star make or break witness. I mean, let's go through the facts. He's a convicted perjurer. He's con- he's committed 
He's been convicted of, of committing other acts of fraud, tax fraud. He claims that that's bogus. The Southern District of New York rejected him. They put it, this is not inside information. They, they put in their sentencing memo for Michael Cohen that while he tried to cooperate and he was truthful about some things, he also was not fully forthcoming and did not answer other questions. So he was rejected as a cooperator by the Southern District of New York. The other problem with Michael is you want your witnesses to be and to appear as impartial and unbiased as possible. You never want, even a cooperator, you never want the cooperator to appear like he's got an ax to grind. The if, man's you know, business model is, is an ax to grind. All Michael Cohen does is talk about, write books about, and do podcasts about how much he hates Donald Trump. I mean, you know, it, 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 it is the defining feature of his professional existence. And so you cannot have a more biased witness and now let's hear from Cohen himself. The MC, Michael Cohen. MC is also Mia Culpa, the name of his podcast, which I have come to enjoy in short bursts. This is my Here was some of today's episode. This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa podcast. It's almost impossible to believe. Donald Trump, a fucking loser in every sense of the word, is still the frontrunner in the Republican Party. As pathetic and bizarre as it may be, this man who is running from the law is still creating chaos that will ultimately dictate the fate of his entire party. And now, as we wait for the possible indictment to come down in the Manhattan District Attorney's case, and that of course is based upon Donald's statements himself, the disgraced, twice-impeached president is trying to change the game. But even though Michael Cohen hurls insults and fucking invective at Donald fucking Trump and does it with a rip-off theme song from The Sopranos in the background, it doesn't mean he's right. I mean, I've heard of breathless coverage, but Michael Cohen's line reads, a straight from the Paramus, New Jersey dinner theater meets Woodmere, Long Island cigar bar. Okay, let's kill the theme song for a second. Does a tainted star witness and an untried legal theory and the possibility that the judge throws out the case before it gets to a jury, plus a DA who campaigned on the idea that he would be prosecuting Trump, does that add up to the ideal circumstance under which to launch the first ever criminal prosecution of a former president? Let's bring back the Cohen music for me to say this. It does not! But you know what else isn't ideal? The fucking behavior of Donald fucking Trump! That is not, by the way, my description of the former president. That is my impression of Michael Cohen. That's how he describes him. And I didn't get a chance in my Cohen impersonation to launch into Cohen insulting that idiot Donald Jr. Cohen is unsparing in his assessment of the intellectual capacity of the Trump scion. But you know, the law doesn't only apply when there's no rebuttal. The law doesn't only apply when it's a very clear case. The law literally makes no distinction for the category of defendants called former presidents and the category called everyone else. If this were the sum total of misdeeds of a former public servant who left office in a state other than one of ignominy, I'd have a certain opinion about the prudence of this prosecution. But that's not the set of circumstance at stake here. 
since Donald Trump left office in a state of disgrace, plus a state of document disarray in Florida, plus a state of election interference in taped recordings in Georgia, plus at least obstruction of an official proceeding in Congress, well, then maybe this crime isn't so novel. Maybe it's part of a pattern. And prosecuting a pattern means examining and scrutinizing every individual component of that pattern and putting each one to the test of legality. And if any individual component is found wanting, then the obligation of the prosecutor kicks in. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is head of philanthropy for Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash thegist. Oomperu, jeeperu, dooperu, and thanks for listening.